0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We are going to be uh, studying this morning Parshat Bihar. If you'll remember, we're in a leap year, which means we split all the double parshiot. all the times that they normally come together. We split them. Um, this year. So w- normally Behar and Bechukotai are read together, uh, but they're not for us today. So um, we're going to look at chapter 25 of the book of Leviticus. We are speaking of the Yovel. We're speaking of Shemitah. We're speaking about the relationship of the Israelites And then if you're going to read Israelite right relationship to anything dealing with godliness or holiness, then ultimately it's humanity's relationship to that should be in general, unless we're talking about specifically Israelite things like shellfish or pork, right? Those seem to be just about Israel being distinct as a people. But there are some things I think that are, there's a more fundamental rightness that Torah seems to understand um, being the case. And this is one of those, I think, that that the relationship to the land, the relationship um, to production, there seems to be an understanding in, in ancient Israel that there's a right way to be in relationship to the land. There's a right way to be uh, in relationship to the idea of the economic class system. Um, and that this is about equity and justice at its deepest levels. So it's easy for us to go, oh, really, Shemitah? Really, Jubilee? Right? Um, so, you know, it's not the sexiest, most exciting material. And I think really, like if we can go to that place of being what Kaplan said, you know, people who are rooted fully and firmly in two civilizations, the American civilization and the Jewish Evolving religious civilization This is one of the places They deeply inform one another um, And in that sense Is a very important parsha. Um, see if you can spot The line of Torah That is a very Very um, famous Icon of American civil religion 25 Someone want to begin
0: The Lord spoke to Moses On Mount Sinai Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, When you enter the land that I assign you, the land shall observe a Sabbath of the Lord. Six years you may sow your field, and six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, a Sabbath of the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your untrimmed vines. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land, but you may eat whatever the land but you may eat whatever the land during its Sabbath will produce. You, your male and female slaves, the hired and bound laborers who live with you, and your cattle and the beasts in your land may eat all its yield.
1: Okay. So God speaks to Moshe on Mount Sinai. And says, Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, The rabbis, it's not lost on the rabbis that, wait a minute, we're going back to Sinai. Right? Like, it, we're, we haven't been in Sinai. I mean, you know, like, we've been in the book of Leviticus, which is the instructions to the priests. And then all of a sudden, as we're closing out this, you know, this dissertation on here's how holiness is to be maintained by the priesthood. And again, we're not sure if that's written for the priest or the people. That's a whole nother discussion. Um, But right at the end of that, we get this whole business about, and God spoke to Moshe at Sinai. So so whatever's coming has a bigger sense to it, right? Like we're back in that flash. We're back in that moment at Sinai. And God says to Moshe at Sinai, and we get Shemitah? It's not lost on the rabbis. That it's like this, this, <laughs> all of this amazing stuff about holiness and sacrifice and living in right relationship and kedusha and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, Shemitah is what the flashback to Sinai is about. So there's a, a big, you know, corpus of, of rabbinic literature on why or what it means that it's Shemitah. And if you consider Shemitah to be less important, then it's like, it's to prove, it's to show that every single commandment came from Sinai. Every single one. And each of us has a relationship to one commandment. For some, it's Shemitah. For other people, it's, you know, Kashrut. For other people, it's something else. It, the, every single mitzvah derives from God speaking at Sinai and it's up to us to determine which exact mitzvah it is that speaks to us at any given time. Okay. If you consider Shemitah to be important, then it's like, well, of course, this is the core of what it means to be, right? A human being living and a human society living in right relationship with godliness. What would that be? If you say Shemitah is desperately important, that's why it flashes back to Sinai here. What's the core concept? Why is that so? What is so important? This is all about human society living in right relationship to God and the land. What's the big idea here? You, you have limits. You have limits. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, there, there's the
2: people and there's the land, and nobody's there to restrain them but themselves whatever they want except
1: they can. <laughs> they can they can do whatever they want except they shouldn't. They,
2: because of no, because of this they cannot.
1: Be, right. So not, so I want to push I want to push you on can. not They're not allowed, yes. which mean, why? why? If they're not allowed and it's God saying you're not allowed, right? right then it's they shouldn't. Right. They can. Yeah. But right so this This is the core of what it means to live a life of godliness is there are things you can do that you shouldn't. So you Israelites are now going to be given this land. We're going to look closely at the biblical language because we're going to understand what given means based on this language. You're going to be given the land and you could work it all the time. It's it's without limitation now that you have the land what you get to do with it except to live in right relationship with the source of life, you shouldn't. You should do what? Take care. Take care. And how do we take care of the land? By resting it. Letting the land rest. You human beings could work seven days a week, 25 hours a day. You could, but you shouldn't. And it is no different for the land. This is a personification of the planet, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing, if you ask me. Right? If we really took that seriously today, can you imagine the sermon? Uh, um, right? On what? What if we really, really personified in the best way, personified the land? What? What would we do differently? Well, the sense here is
0: that the land doesn't belong to us.
1: So this it is where we're going to look. God. We're going to look very carefully, exactly at at the language because it tells us something.
3: All right. So it, it's, it's interesting. the English, the word he uses, the word that uses, assign. Not that I give you, I assign to you that it means that uh, I'm giving you. You're sort of a caretaker here. That, you're going to look after it for me. That's what I take the word to sign.
1: Very nice close reading, Ruben. Very nice close reading. So that you're responsible. You're, responsible. you're responsible for it. You are taking care of it, like Bert says and Ruben says, for me, capital M, for me. So the the Hebrew here is aninotain lachem. What does notain mean? Give. If. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. It's give. Why did the English, the people writing the English of this, choose the word assign? Because they've done their homework. And they've read all the stuff below the line. And all this stuff below the line talks about what we know from Akkadian. Once we found a bunch of documents in Ugarit, we found a bunch of legal documents. And once we found those, we knew from the Akkadian that there are direct cognates. Akkadian, you'll recall, is a parent language of Hebrew. So, from the Akkadian, we know what some of this Hebrew means. Once we found those documents, and based on that, you can't say "notain" means "give." It can't mean that. It has to mean something more like a sign. All right. So, and we'll see why. So, you may sow for six years, and you may prune your vineyard. How you got to prune a vineyard twice a year? You prune it in the spring. And then you prune it again once the buds have happened in the summer, in June or July. You trim it again. You prune it again so that, right, it produces the way it's supposed to. Vineyard here could mean wine, and some people think it might also mean olive orchard, right? Two very important crops in the ancient Near East and in Israel in particular. Um, and you may gather in, in your yield, right? But in the seventh year, it will be... Shabbat Shabbaton. Where's the other place we see this language of Shabbat Shabbaton? Yes. Lord, Laura gets the gold star. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. So tell me about some resonances that happen with Yom Kippur, even back in this time. What's the flavor of Yom Kippur? Forgiveness for what? For wrongdoing, to so the, the, to what Wrong, to God to God wrongdoing to God wrongdoing to God through behavior, right? That we do with each other, or in this case, right? It's, I think the resonance and implication is to the land. Right? So, so when you start using the language of Shabbat, Shabbaton, even ancient Israelites knew <laughs> Right? This is this is serious about how we behave. And this is serious vis-a-vis whether or not God's presence can dwell among us. And if God's presence in ancient Israel doesn't dwell among us, what happens? We're
2: screwed.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Mickey. We're screwed is the technical biblical terminology.
2: Rabbi, I mean, are you suggesting that there are there's a hierarchy of mitzvot, like before you were saying
1: well, maybe this is the one that I feel really connected to. Like, we get to choose, because that's... Different. God forbid. God forbid. I should say that. Chas Khalila. chalila. Chalila, So, right, rabbinically, that's like sacrilege, right? right? So it's a good point that you bring up. Um, I think the resonance is about there's wrongdoing that y'all do to each other, and that involves me, like Bert says, that God says that involves me too. And if you don't behave correctly vis-a-vis the land, that also has a significant amount to do with me, right? There's the Shabbat Shabbaton that the land here. Here's what it is. The I think the Shabbat Shabbaton that the land gets is as important in in its reality as Shabbat Shabbaton is for y'all in yours. You need to take that as seriously as you take your Shabbat, Shabbaton, which is Yom Kippur. Yeah? It's just as important. Just as important. Okay. What happens to the land that was set aside every year for or like, the, border,
0: or the for the poor during this period of uh,
1: fallowness? So what's interesting, Marlo, that you bring up is in this period of fallowness, everybody's equal. The poor and the people who own the field are eating the same way. They're all just collecting what's there. Nobody can harvest, right? Everybody's coming. Presumably, they would still come and harvest what's there at the edges, just like the regular Israelites who own the field. They, they get no more than that either. I mean, proportionately, they probably get more. But it's kind of, But th- this whole thing is an equalizer, Right. This and Yovel, as we're going to see, and, and then it goes on later in bechukotai the parsha that comes after this, it goes on to talk about people. That it, this is the great equalizing of the society, which Rabbi Jacob Staub has a lot to say about. What does the word Shabbat mean? It's a very good question. What does Shabbat? Usually, it is used along with Shabbat. So it is Shabbat, Shabbaton. So in Hebrew, when you double something like that, you, know, you change the form, but you, you double you, the root, it's an emphatic. And it's very hard to put in English. So often, like this translation says, a Shabbat of complete rest. Eh, is it a great translation? No. Is it as close as we can get in English? Probably, but I've, it's something more like way Shabbat. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Super duper Shabbat, right? Like, So it, that's how I tend to translate those doubles, is like way supersize me. Blanche?
3: There's a story in the family that in a town in Poland, there was a baker who would take in the women's casserole what they were going to eat in the shops and keep it in the oven. And what he would do is even out the amount of food oh, in wow. each casserole. Wow. And I thought it was such an example of what we're talking about.
1: Unbelievable, Blanche. Unbelievable. What an amazing story. So he would take all the casseroles into his oven to keep them warm because, of course, the women couldn't cook on Shabbos. And then so from all the people who brought it in, he would just kind of scoop from one, if it was fuller, into one that was emptier. That is amazing. Now, something about that's got to be midrash because if you've spent a lot of time making a casserole, tuna casserole, and somebody else makes whatever, you can't tell me that somebody's not going to notice that there's a big glop of chili in your tuna casserole. But, But I love the... What a wonderful story about! What a wonderful idea about! Because, because I think that story, as it got passed around and told in that Polish village, is about what should be. In other words, whether it happened or not is not important. Everyone knows that what the baker was doing was one of the highest meets vote possible. Well, right? That that's how it should be. That somebody should be manipulating. And making it all even, and we get them back, and go, oh, good, my casserole. It
3: wasn't a casserole; it was a cholent and everybody made it the same way. Okay, there you go.
1: That now, now it's believable. Ruben has given me the commentary that makes it fully believable. It was cholent and everybody made it the same way. Now you could have it be evened out, and and I would totally. <laughs> all right. So, um, and because the other thing about that story is, it implies that the people who brought a big casserole didn't miss the amount that was gone, or they wouldn't have brought it back week after week, would they? I mean, there's an implication that if we all just gave a little bit that we wouldn't really miss, then the people whose bowls are not so full would have plenty. That's, that's a profound message and reminder. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story. Thank you, Blanche. All right, so we're back at the very exciting work of pruning. So you prune, you prune twice, once in the spring, once in the summer. <clears throat> you shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest, right? So what, what grows after the harvest, this is what Margot goes to, you're not allowed usually to go back because it feeds the poor, but you now, you're going to leave it because, you know, you're not going to harvest the grapes of your untrimmed vines. They are untrimmed because they are off-limits. They haven't been pruned, right? Because they are off limits. You're, you're not going to grow them for the Shemitah year. But you may eat whatever the land during its Sabbath will produce. So whenever you're dealing with an agrarian culture, an agrarian society, during the planting season, during the growing season, the winds blow seeds everywhere. everywhere. And so often what grows the next year is stuff that got blown to where it is. So there's often... You don't have to plant often for there to be growth the next year. It's just not going to be nearly, of course, what what you're used to. Mickey? There's, uh,
3: there's often the growth anyway uh-huh. from the following year.
1: Correct. So second and third growth. There are Hebrew terms for second growth and third growth, which is fascinating, right? That They were so connected to the land that they have a word, You know, like Eskimos, you know, 73 words for snow, right? The Israelites had a a special term for second growth and third growth. Who knew?
0: The sense sense was, though, that it was God that was making those things happen.
1: Well, no, it was their understanding that those things just happened, but we're going to see where God is implicated um, in that. So, blah, 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 blah. so you may eat whatever the land during its Sabbath will produce. You, your male and female slaves, right? Back to Margot's point. This is the great equalizer, the hired and bound laborers who live with you. So why do laborers live with you? they slaves? They're like indentured servants. They're indentured servants. Close to
3: the
1: so they're close to the field. You've got so many folks who are indentured that they come from further away than, than they can just kind of go back home. Sometimes these are foreign laborers. Sometimes these are Hebrews. These are Israelites. Talk to me about indentured servitude. How does that happen? What happens that somebody's indentured? you, you know, couldn't go back alone. Or... So, you, so, go, so you're, you have a crop. You buy seed, you plant your crop, the crop fails. Now what? I need to, how do I get seed to, to plant for the next harvest? What do I have to do? Borrow it from somebody. Or buy And what do I put up as collateral? My work, myself. My, my land. I put my land up as collateral. Now the crop fails. Now I can't pay back the loan for the seed and the labor to plant and so, and, and all of that. And so, so now I've lost the land. Now I have no way to feed my family. I've, I have no way to buy seed. I, and, I, and it's not my land to plant on. So now what do I do? I either indenture myself or I indenture my children. My children leave my land and go live on somebody else's estate and they work off my debt as I work the land. Yes? So it is not uncommon. It was not uncommon that you had indentured servitude. In Israel, of Israelites, you know, controlling the labor of other Israelites. That is why and how we get so many laws in Torah about how how you should treat your Hebrew slaves. People go, What? Okay. Hebrew slaves? It's Hebrew indentured servants for the most part. And slaves. Slaves are the ones you get by conquering somebody else.
3: So they're both
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Both Yes, well there are some some rules that are different for Hebrew slaves But for the most part, they are the same
4: Correct. It wasn't their decision,
0: though. Here, the decision to do this comes from God. It says, this yeah. is what you should
1: do. No, I think she's talking about um, indentured, so, servitude. indentured servitude. You know, was their system oh. for kind of feeding... Well, and, and frankly, this is the way it still works today. You go to agrarian, third world, you know, societies that are marginally sustaining themselves... Something happens, there's a famine, there's a drought, there's a failure of the crops. What do you think happens? They sell their children to pay off their debts into servitude. And lots of people are buying them. As Rabbi Rubin likes to say, there are more slaves in the world today than ever before. Ever before in history. There's
4: no limitations on their slavery.
1: Correct. That's exactly right. There's, it is unregulated. Exactly right. All right. So everyone may eat. Then, eight.
2: You shall count out seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives you a total of 49 years. Then you shall sound the horn loud in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month the day of atonement. You shall have the horns sounded throughout your land, and you shall hallow the fiftieth year. You shall proclaim release throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you shall return to your holding, and each of you shall return to your family. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow, neither shall you reap the aftergrowth or harvest the untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. Only the growth
1: direction. Okay. Anybody see the verse? Did you find it? Show me, Sarah. What is it?
3: 12.
1: You shall proclaim liberty throughout the land. Where is this found in our, in our American civil religion? No. The Liberty Bell. This is the quote on the Liberty Bell. Right from here. You
4: said that last
1: time. Right? It's a bit ironic now that we're going to study it. It's a bit ironic that it's on the Liberty Bell. Let's see why. So you (laughs) shall count off seven weeks of years. An interesting mix of terminology. A Shabbat of years. Kind of, right? So this is truly about some kind of moral implication around rest, around we're going to see around release. Seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years, right? Again, an interesting terminology, gives you a total of 49 years. Then what are you going to do? Sound the horn. You're going to blow a trua on the shofar. Trua is the big, ba-ba, right? The big one. You're going to blow a big one on in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, which is What? Yom Kippur. Oh, yeah. So lest we should think we're reading too much into Shabbat Shabbaton business, and the read right, the resonance of Yom Kippur. Tadam! Here it is. Yovel, Jubilee, is declared on for that fiftieth year on Yom Kippur, and you shall hallow the fiftieth year. Yes. V'kidashtem et shnata What have I taught you? Kadosh means set apart. It is set aside. It is, this year becomes something that is set aside for purposes having to do with right relationship with God. That's what kustalad shin always means. Rabbi Nick.
0: So we're in the midst of another really interesting uh, 7 and 7 cycle right now as we speak.
1: Indeed, and what would that be?
0: That would be the whole (laughs) cycle of the Omer and the counting of the Omer that (laughs) ascends to Shavuot Another one of these set aside, the 50th day being the day upon which we receive Torah. Um, So just to put in another resonance here, that this 7 and 7 cycle, that kind of ascent to something, always ascends to something, uh, well, of great magnitude within you.
1: Of great magnitude. Uh, Thank you.
0: There's a, there's a
1: brandy
0: in Israel, Sheva, Sheva, Sheva. they too <three> many there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what that ascent is about is, <laughs> right, is an interesting question. So Margot asks, are there other ones, right? So it, it's interesting that 40 is generally the number we get about a cycle, right, about completion, so the fact that it's seven times seven, the one after that seems to be like bum, 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 bah, the, the big one, right? The big cycle Shavu, from from Pesach, from liberation to becoming a people in relationship to God. That's a big one. And from right from uh, from how it is now to how it ultimately should be. Boom, that's a big one. Because we're going to see what Yovel does. Yovel is radical, people. It is radical.
5: Seems to me, though, that there would have been a lot of indentured servants and slaves who would not have lived to this day. Correct. And who would have died in indenturehood and in slavery.
1: Correct. Torah is is taking the long view. This is not... It's a very good point, Paula. It is not about the individual, right? Which is important for us to remember. Torah, in this case, is concerned with Israelite society. And we tend to focus so much on the individual, right, that, oh, yeah, but my father didn't live to see Yeovil, right? Um, and that is our American reading of this, which is wonderful and fine, and I'm glad we have concern for the individual. Don't get me wrong. Um, Torah concerned, this seems to be a societal thing, right? That, that there should be a way that things are reset so that at least your father's family gets a release, right? You know, that, because they, they thought in terms of clan, the unit was the clan. And so th- there's a sense of you're resetting the relationship of the clans to each other. To, to get trying to get back to to equity, which we're going to see, and Rabbi Jacob Staub talks a lot about you know how amazing and radical that is, and how limited in some ways. So we'll, I mean, not how, and it's limited in some ways by already the categories of clan who belongs to one who doesn't. You had to be an Israelite then, descended from Israelites, because that's who got the land, and that's how it that's how it reverts. You know, and so there, there's all these complicating factors that don't make it completely equitable. It's still a radical idea, right? And there's, there's also
5: the category of who is deserving and who is not deserving.
1: Okay, now wait, deserving—you're starting to use different language than total. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
5: But it's it's part of our
1: culture today, ours today, 100% who deserves to have enough food and nutritious food and a good education and decent health care and vaccinations and a future and who,
5: deserves,
1: and who to helped, deserves to be helped and who is undeserving, 100%. And this idea right here completely undercuts that and says it is immoral. It is ordained by God that everybody should, at some point, go back to not being poor. Okay, so so you shall, okay, let's go down here. We're at Yom Kippur. You shall have the horns sounded throughout your land, and you shall hallow the 50th year. What is the next verse? You shall proclaim so we get this interesting terminology, dror, which is a Hebrew name, if you can believe it, dror, it's like, like you have marbles in your mouth, but, the, but it is a Hebrew name in Israel because it has this amazing history, dror does not mean liberty, so the liberty Bell actually is wrong, Shh, don't tell anybody. But, um, right, it's not a good translation of what this means. Because what's on the Liberty Bell, yay, that makes total sense as the American revolutionaries call to, right, we will be free, we'll, we'll be liberated from what? The tyranny. The oppression of the, of the king. The oppression of the king, the tyranny <laughs> of the British, right, you know, mon- monarchy and the system whereby we pay taxes, but we don't, you know, get to have any say in what happened. That's <laughs> Fantastic. What does dror mean? Now that we have the Acadian documents from Ugarit, what we know is that word is a technical term about real estate. And it is about the sale of real estate. And it is about what happens when you re- when you release your hold on real estate. No, it's it's you have to use different terminology to talk about um, to talk about the kind of ownership you have of land. There's an ownership where you have to say the words in Acadian in the legal document forever and ever and ever and ever, not to be undone. That means other kinds of sale of land were not permanent. In perpetuity, says the attorney. All right? So it's legal language in perpetuity. So dror means, in Akkadian, um, it, it means literally to move about freely. And it has to do with servants who have been bound now having the state of dror, of release. Of being allowed to move about freely means they are no longer bound. So we have this idea about land being temporary until Jubilee. You can't own it permanently, you can only own it till the Jubilee. We're gonna see what that means. And then people as well get dull, they get released, they're able to move about freely, means they are no longer indentured servants. Paula? Which
4: is very interesting because it seems like God is exclusively. And,
1: and supersedes all other arrangements that people may have between each other, which is just amazing. Now you are
4: a Torah scholar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, you just said but, that. I just
1: but that, that's exactly right. That if you read closely, what it's saying is, because it's mine, right. says God, as are all human beings. All of them created in my image. You don't get to say this one's deserving and this one's not. This one has a basic amount of dignity and that one shouldn't because they have different color, because they come from different countries, because they have a different language, because they look different, because their parents were whatever. You don't get to say that. Dror They will all be released. In
5: 1604, the, in England, which we get a lot of our common law from was was uh, promulgated the English Poor laws. And from that time it was stated who was deserving of help and who was undeserving. And that's where our the American tradition comes from,
1: those sixteen hundred books. There you go. Yeah. All right. So, so what is my, what do I find ironic about the idea of the land and people experiencing droll? And why is it ironic for me that the folks settling this country put it on the Liberty Bill? While they were taking land. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. <laughs> As they are taking the land from the natives and murdering them wholesale or taking them as slaves, release for the land and all people shall be proclaimed throughout the land. Really? Because, because you're defining who is people. Who they are the deserving that. people, wow. and the others, and, an and it's the others much. are a like not were in the it's terrible. Yeah, it's right. So, awesome. Torah is completely antithetical, right? You know, Torah understanding and Torah law would have been completely antithetical to these sixteen oh four whatevers in <laughs> Britain, right? <laughs> completely poor laws, completely antithetical, right? And so. And the deep irony is, and and I say this, I don't mean to be cheeky or sarcastic. It, it is a, it is a, an irony that is very sad for me that that we we put it on the Liberty Bell, and then what did we do to the land and to the people of the land? What do we continue to do to the land here and to the people? Right? It, it just. Having lived in Duluth, Minnesota, and been exposed to the minority where I lived was was Native Indians. In, they were they were Indians. No, you're right. Actually, politically correct term is Indians. They that's, want to be called Indians, not Native Americans. Yeah. So, so the Indians, the Ojibwe, were the minority in Duluth. They're the ones who are poor. They're the ones who are undeserving. They're the ones who are on welfare. They're the ones who you know whose kids don't have a future. You know, I shouldn't say that. That it feels like we don't seem to care very much whether or not their kids can live into their full potential, and and I and it just was a constant reminder, right, that I didn't ever really have to face. Well, that's not true. I grew up in the South, so I was always aware of what what white Europeans here did to other peoples. It was a whole nother level to experience Native American decimation of their culture, of their language. You know um, that we have wrought, and then when I think about this environment and what we've done, it's like the Liberty Bell just becomes this very complicated symbol of. Yes, that's our ideal, and yes, that's what we should be reaching for. And if we go back to where that comes from, and we really look at what the Torah philosophy is about what we should do, it's just shameful how out of whack with this we are living. Maybe that's why the Liberty Bell is cracked. cracked. (laughs) The Liberty
2: Bell is cracked. But it's in keeping with our other documents and moments of history, because the decimation of the Indians came before... This time, before the Liberty Bell, it happened before we wrote our Constitution, which did not, you know, it said liberty, but it was really liberty for those who already had it and wanted to keep it and thought everything was fine that way. And our history has been slowly chipping away and changing that, and we're still doing
1: that. Right, and and to be fair, Torah law it also would have been Israelite males, mm-hmm. you know, who. Had inherited land at at the at the you know conquest and and it was they who would be released you know a ger toshav somebody who came from another country who lived there and started a family they're not included in this which is what Rabbi Doctor Jacob Staub you know points out is there's always kind of a place you got to start and then you hope that it evolves to be something else and so I want to be fair that Torah also is limited in in its vision.
2: For the, for the other abolitionists, you know, for, wait I mean, that doesn't sound like what we're
1: living. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, Blanche. So we have
3: those Sterlings among us <laughs> <laughs> who believe they're the law. And since I worked with the fair housing laws a good part of my life, I have dealt the complaints against her.
1: Against Sterling? Sterling, mm-hmm. yes.
3: And the people have gotten some awards, but the latest fiasco was. We had the, one of our first cases was about Kareem, mm-hmm. and he came to our office. Who else ignored them? And said he couldn't get an apartment. He wanted to live in Malibu. He just working. He was with the team at UCLA. And Laura's father, Roger Diamond, was the attorney I went to. And he called a press conference. And there was an uproar in the Because he was basketball player was such a hero. And so of course he got the part. But it was but look what you had to do to
1: get, yeah. to get yes. And that that is right, that is a beautiful story about, right, that it's now we know how Laura comes by her, uh, <laughs> <Okay>. her <laughs> it rolls off right her brain and heart and tongue easily. Um the the evolution of these, right? That it and it takes people like you and Laura's father, Roger, it takes people who are ready and willing to challenge the current understanding of the application of our most cherished ideals and to expand them. And for me, the important thing you bring up is that freedom, as we expand who's entitled to freedom and liberty and the protection of their you know, civil rights, it, it expands freedom for everyone. Right? That, that that basketball player and all of you who challenged it, once that happened and you won, now it expands the idea of who is free, which is why it is always so interesting to me that, that people who are against gay marriage say it threatens the institution of marriage. I'm like, show me one case in history where expanding a freedom has ever threatened the original group's legal rights like it's, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard Bert.
0: so the question is what's the point behind all this what's the point point? and what I get out of it behind all of this is to teach us humility Just say that again Bert. to teach us humility whether it be Shabbat every week or whether it be Shabbat of the land that even though we think the land is ours mm-hmm. and we act as if it's ours it really isn't, and that, at least to me, that's the lesson here that we can take, even though we don't practice this.
1: So, who who would be willing to go get the rest of the copies off the copier? Thank you, um, Lisa. Funny you should say that, Bert. What's the point?
3: Any symbolism of the fact that the Liberty Bell is cracked?
1: I think we have arrived, uh, Ruben, at a new understanding, yes, of what the crack symbolizes and represents. Yes, I think we have articulated that this morning. And I will never look at the Liberty Bell the same way again, I have to tell you. And it
3: should stay cracked.
1: And it should stay cracked until. It's, It's It's funny you say that, Sarah. Right. Not haha funny, but um, I have a colleague who, whenever we gathered the Tzitziot for the Shema, the words at which we gathered the Tzitziot are, right, that we should be gathered from the four corners of the earth. That's where we pull together the tzitzit, wrap them around our finger in preparation for Adonai Echad. God is one, meaning it is all, we are all one in that and i have a colleague who because a lot of us interpret that we don't just go to gather us from all corners of the earth we have a state of israel most of us don't choose to live there so it's not like we're longing to be gathered to israel instead the the a lot of us in progressive jewish life have a kavana that gather all peoples from the four corners of the earth into an understanding adonai echad right and I have a colleague, and this is kind of this is common among us who you know talk about this stuff and care about it. And so I have a colleague who gathers all four t t o t with that kavana, and then drops one. And she says, "May there come a time where I don't have to drop one." And until all peoples come together from the four corners of the earth, I, I have to drop one. And you know that same lovely idea it should stay cracked until and. Bimei Rabbi Amenu, Halavai, it should only be speedily and in our day that we'd need to mend the crack. All right, so we're going to look at the commentary of uh, Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artsen. Um, And so we're going to come down to the Israelite farmer at the bottom of page one. Somebody read. look at the back of your packet that's now we're going to the back of your packet the very very back page looks like this yes okay go ahead Jews living freely
4: well begin to think of the land as theirs by right. it would be a small step to assert that since the land responds to human labor, it is ultimately a tool for humans to use as they seek Go on. Once every seven years, the mitzvah of Shemitah presents a reminder that we merely use the earth, but that ultimately the land is not ours, nor any human's property. As individuals, we are able to borrow land, utensils, and material things but must ultimately return
1: to the because we are given it as achuzah, a holding right as again we, if you look at the Akkadian and the language in the Bible you can see that it means a temporary holding because it ultimately God and later in our Parsha, God says because y'all are essentially tenants <laughs> on my land all y'all are tenants you don't own anything as Bert said it's mine. Y'all get to use it within the limits that I set. In our progressive religious language, we get to use the land as long as we place limits on that that are protective of the absolute integrity of the land itself and our awareness that we do not own anything in the cosmos. And our bodies as well. And our bodies as well. That's why Shabbat is not optional. You do not own your own body or your own labor either. God does. The force in this universe that calls us into justice and equity and compassion and healing and transformation and love and compassion for one another demands that we stop. All right. As a
0: species, Bert. As a species, we're a part of that recurrent cycle and thus are permanently linked to the limitations and rules imposed on the world. The Torah, through the institution of Shemitah, records God's sacred truth, that the land is mine, but you are strangers resident with me. Ramban clarifies that verse by paraphrasing it as, don't think that you are so essential. The world is not a plaything for human beings, and the vast array of organic and living things serve a purpose higher than human whim. Together with humanity, the rest of the cosmos is a living, interlocking symphony to our creator. We are the tenants, but God is the
1: only Balhabayit. Habayit. Okay, and so um, we're going to go to your point because Ramban is saying what Bert was saying, that he thinks ultimately this is about humility. Bert, go on to see how that is interpreted by our brilliant uh, Rabbi Shavit Artson.
0: Distracted by the brilliance of human achievement, and deafened by the clatter of our own insolent self-absorption, we can too easily forget that we are part of an order we neither made nor sustained. A little lower than the angels, yes, but still a long way from being masters of the universe. Human beings are trapped in an illusion that we hold ourselves or our species to be the measure of all things. Only by linking our own destiny to something transcendent, by joining our future to an eternal living force, by molding our deeds into a song of praise and gratitude, can human beings escape the despair of our own mortality and fallibility? <clears throat> Focusing on our own needs and desires, we will always be disappointed in ourselves and the world. But if, if we lift our eyes to a higher vision, if we set our feet on a more tested path, we can soar above our plight as on eagle's wings. Oh!
3: Right? One of the things that helps you do this is children.
5: Tell me. Make you humble. Because when you <laughs> when you have
1: children
3: and you or you're concerned with the future through children, uh, it lifts you to another place. And your own concerns are. More
1: balanced. Put in per- a different perspective. Yes, mm-hmm. I just was uh, on a conference call with other rabbis who are taking in interns from HUC, uh, the Reform Seminary. This year, we are taking an intern as always, and we are getting, by the way, Zach. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Nadine's <laughs> husband, Zach, who was an ACC teacher here, will be our intern for the year. Very yeah, we're very happy. <laughs> so, um, so we had a conversation about mentoring. Um, and and I've and we were given an article to read called "Touching the Future," uh, and it it talked a lot about whether it's through children, students, me- a mentoring relationship with someone even of similar generational age. It's this idea that you you get to touch the future, and there's a way that that is a serious corrective to our obsession with our circumstances in the present, right, that, that what I think what I hear you saying is what he's saying, which when we, when we link our lives to something transcendent, we are lifted. It's not just that we're in service of it. We are lifted up and out of our own, you know, preoccupation with our own current circumstances. And I think that's a really, really important spiritual teaching, God Laura. can
0: drop the ladder, but only we can climb it. <laughs>
1: what, How many of these do you have in your back pocket, Bert? <laughs> Laura.
2: What is that higher vision that we're lifting our eyes to? I mean, what is it is it these concrete vote that we're talking about, treating the land the way it should be treated, treating people the way it should be treated? Does it necessarily require a belief in some universal being, or is it just about the release? What that
1: for him I think he is talking about the fact that rather than being so obsessed with our stuff we start to think about a relationship to stuff what is stuff what is our place in the stuff of the cosmos right that there's a way when one lifts one's attention from the you know, minutiae to the idea of we need to have an understanding that it is all God, it is all belonging to itself, and that that's a transcendent idea, but it's not just an idea. Like, if we really... Take some time to reflect and connect to practices that bring us into living out that assumption. In this case, the Jubilee, the Yovel, the Shemitah. If we actually did that Shabbat every week, right? If we actually did that, we're connecting our lives and our attention and our being to something that's a corrective for how we get so self-focused.
2: So it's not the here, it's really more of the higher. Paying attention
1: in a different way. Yeah, and paying attention to something larger and way larger, way bigger than my car is 14 years old. When do I get it? How do I get a new one? You know, like it like okay but i i have a car other people don't have transportation or other i mean other people in africa are walking six hours a day to get clean water so their family doesn't dehydrate or die of some horrible disease in a stagnant pool like do you know what i mean it's that literal a a corrective for for us it changes how i get in my car that's
0: one of the functions of jewish blessings of the idea of saying blessings at all is to right. remind our consciousness whether yes. we're eating or, or whatever we're doing in our lives that of that connection I think it also says what I
1: love about it, laws. it's what?
4: This, this portion I've heard is actually the thesis for
1: bankruptcy laws
4: right. and our way of thinking that no one deserves to be in debt forever but everyone deserves a second chance Especially like when Sarah talks about the children. Sometimes the parents have made a lot of mistakes, but the children deserve a shot. It's the same as any other child. You know, so you want to get to a place where you can even out the playing field, and we might have the one percent. If we didn't, if we had something closer to these laws, right? You know, things get to get hundred percent real concentration of wealth, and it's hard to move
1: against it. That's right, and this corrects it generationally. What Linda's talking about, about the imbalance of wealth. To your point, Paula, it, it, true. Some individuals will die in indentured servitude, but to what Linda's saying is, societally, it meant it, it reset things generationally. So, because right now the concentration of wealth in our country, right, it, it, it gets worse and worse. You know, as it makes interest and makes more money for the people with money, their kids inherit inherit more money, and taxes, inheritance taxes are supposed to to balance some of that, but. It, but it doesn't. I want to go back to what Laura asked and go to the Bihar, the Rabbi Sheffel Gold. I just want to read a paragraph of her. You can read the rest at home, and we're going to be d- sitting with some of this in our next class, in our meditation class, in a moment. But um, Laura, read that paragraph. No, wait, because Laura likes to listen, and it, it moves her. So so Linda, read the paragraph once we have heard the voice. Oh, the, the other, the other
3: side
4: I got it. Once we have heard the voice of the land, we will never be the same. Even when we begin to play the game of possessions again. Once there is that flash of self-awareness that this is a game, and all that we see is really God in the sky, our playing will be transformed. And perhaps once, maybe twice in a lifetime, at the time of the Jubilee, all masks, all roles will for a time fall away. Then we will know that we are loved by God not for the role we play or the work we do or the knowledge or things we have acquired, but for our true essence alone. Knowing this allows us to see and love each other in the same way. The Jubilee strips us down and teaches us the pure joy of existence. The heart challenges us and asks, Are you ready to sound the shofar and call forth the consciousness are you ready to let go of everything and return
1: to your true home in God? Did Rabbi Gold answer your question, Lauren? <sighs> Unbelievable, as always, her brilliance and insight into what's the point, what is this about, what is this supposed to do? Or, I mean, it's profound what she has to say. What is
3: the exact translation of Beha?
1: At the mountain. Behar. In, literally, in the mountain. But you can't be in the mountain unless you're the rabbis writing a midrash. They love that. <laughs> um, Behar means um, at the mountain. And that, that's how we started it. God said to Moshe, Behar Sinai, at the mountain. Um, and then people say, well, what does Yovel actually mean? You know, what is Jubilee? What is that? You know what Yovel actually means? Ram. Ram. Hmm. Ram. Or or the ram's horn. That's what Yovel actually means.
3: Does anybody keep track of Jubilee year now? Yeah. Oh, sure.
1: Yes, and ram's it doesn't it, there's lots written as soon as Israel was re-statified and we became the the sovereign nation, you know, of Israel again, it was a huge discussion in the observant world about, uh (laughs) uh-oh, how do you do this? How do you participate in a contemporary economy and keep Torah law? Because there's lots of laws that are only true in the state of, when you have the land of Israel. So we were always like, we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about remission of debts because we're not in Israel. Yeah, but now when you're in Israel, it's a whole nother legal conundrum. And you should have seen the machinations of the chief rabbinate, to deal with it. It was a hu- I mean in Talmudic times it was an issue too. That's why we have the bruise bowl, but that's another discussion. So, so if, if you wanted, there, you could track the legal discussion, the halachic legal discussion and the renderings of decisions about how to get out of <laughs> Yovel oh, no. because you can't participate in the world economy and do and Yovel. Really, right? You can't really? take a, a, a year off from selling your, your Jaffa oranges. Or right, especially when it was founded, when the state was founded. Wouldn't that be two years? Because you're taking up forty-ninth year. Because you're not planting. The seven, okay. and then and then the you next got a, so the next year, yeah. And so that's that's what we didn't read. What I was going to say to you is that that's where you said God was involved. Is God says, "Don't worry. You shouldn't get panicky and stingy. You know, thinking what are we going to eat? It's two years. I'll make sure that your crops are so productive you'll be eating it for three years."
0: Last question that
1: uh, That Rabbi Rabbi Gold asks. asks. Yes.
4: It reminds me of something else, and I think the answer should be no. No, I'm thinking of the the men that hold up, or the people that hold up the world, the Lamed
0: Bob.
1: The Lamed Bobniks. And
0: someone said it, um, a wise person said it. If you know you're a Bobnick, then you're really not they don't, they don't know who they are because they just,
1: They would never think that of themselves they would never God forbid think that of themselves. And I was just thinking about that with, with this line are you
0: ready to let go of everything in return for what, what you're asking and um, maybe if you think you are then you're really not ready or something Yeah, so <laughs>
1: I think what Rabbi Gold is getting at is that we are we are challenged periodically to this. Not always. Not that we shouldn't ha- ask the question frequently, um, but but that Yovel and Shemitah come to to challenge us to really really get it that it's all a game how much I have, how much I don't have versus how much you have versus how much he doesn't have, that it's all a game and that that's not what value is really about. Value is that we are expressions of the one and only thing, which is God. The only reality, capital R, as Rabbi Rami Shapiro might say, are we ready to drop our, stat- our attachment to status and stuff and clothes and cars and really, really rem- like live from a place, even for a moment, of what I am is God. I'm a wave, but what I really am is ocean. Are we ready to remember we're ocean? And what would that mean? And what would that call out? from me that I'm, that makes me, frankly, a little nervous, right? right. We'll close with the words of, as you know, one of my favorites, the poet, the late Minnesota poet of blessed memory, Ruth Bryn. Bihar, Testament of Freedom. The people of America read about the sabbatical year and the year of the jubilee as a testament of Freedom. In the beginning, they engraved the words of Leviticus on the Liberty Bell, proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Generations later, the slaves, in hopes of their freedom, sang the year of the jubilo and go down Moses. You made us to be free. You set the spark in every human heart. Now, help us fan the spark to flame to light our way. Now, help us break the chains, tear down the walls, help us bring freedom at last to all the world.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go
4: to our website, www.ourki.org.